in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. We've been going through the St. Paul in St. Paul series, which I've wanted to do for years. The MLT can attest to me talking about this idea. And so I realized maybe six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, that if I didn't start, I wouldn't have a chance to go through it at all. Uh, And sadly, I could probably go another five to 10 weeks and, and go into all the different details of Paul's missionary journeys. And then I realized maybe a week ago, there's just not gonna be time at all. So we're gonna be breezing through Paul's missionary journeys over the next two weeks. We just have two weeks left of Paul, but there are two personal stories of his that I wanna get into. So that's the thing we've tried to, been, tried to do this whole time is humanize Paul, right? We always think of him as this brain on a stick, this theologian, rather than a person, a human being who has thoughts and, and, and pains and emotions just like us. And so I've been wanting to go through the personal side of Paul so that for the rest of your lives, as you read his teaching, his theology, his books, his letters, you can remember him as a person. So uh, we're kind of just, we can't go into all of his missionary journeys, but I wanted to wrap on two episodes of his life before we wrap the series. Okay, so breaking from that, I wanna start a different subject. So you guys have heard me joke sometimes about how uh, evangelical pastors sometimes have such a limited imagination that all of their allusions to literature come from only two sources. You guys maybe heard me joke about this, uh, that if, if an evangelical pastor alludes to anything in a book outside the Bible, it'll be either to a C.S. Lewis or a J.R. Tolkien book. Um, for those of you who maybe don't know that, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a classic. Uh, he wrote a bunch of other stuff, but he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a classic, especially children's and, and, and young adult kind of story that mirrors the gospel. Uh, And a lot of people don't know that Lewis and Tolkien were best friends for years and that they taught right next door to each other. And Tolkien would always complain about C.S. Lewis's booming voice coming through the wall at Oxford, that he could not teach properly because C.S. Lewis's voice would just boom right right through the walls. So I'm actually going to break the, the, the joke that I make about other pastors today and talking about that. I'm going to just like flagrantly break that and talk about these two people as we tee up this issue of Paul. Because though we know that Lewis and Tolkien were friends and they were in these writing clubs together, um, what a lot of people don't know is that they had a pretty big falling out as well. That story doesn't get told as often. Uh, And it wasn't some high pressure argument, but just a lot of small disagreements and arguments over time. Many of you have had a really close friend for five, 10, 15 years, and then things happen, right? We've all been there. Things happen and a wedge kind of grows between you whether it's over disagreements or competition or misunderstandings, miscommunication, that wedge grows wider and wider. And even if you have a few heartwarming moments later where you try to reconcile, there's still it's never quite the same, right? I won't make you guys raise your hands, but think on if that's happened to you or not. I think most people here would agree that it has. And this happened to Lewis and Tolkien. Now, there's a number of reasons. One of them is that they're two of the most read English authors in the entire 20th century. So. It's a lot of noises today. Um, the Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you knew this, was the top-selling book of the entire 20th century. Many po- apologies to Harry Potter. Sorry, Caleb. Uh, Lord of the Rings, number one selling book of the 20th century. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was sixth. Uh, but they're both just ridiculously successful, right? So when you have two authors who are not only great, but they're best friends and they're the greatest authors in the English language for a hundred year period, there can be some tensions there, right? About 
they, they, they clearly chose very different writing styles, very different approaches to how they would communicate wisdom through their books. And they openly disagreed about some of those. Tolkien did not like how allegorical uh, C.S. Lewis's characters were, that like Aslan was so close to the person of Christ, he thought that that was kind of a cheap shot. Uh, and whereas Lewis had other issues with Tolkien, and they just kind of, they were friends, but they also disagreed on these things. Some other reasons are that uh, Tolkien is largely the reason he, he discipled C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an, an atheist, and just through slow one-on-one -on -one ministry and conversations over the years, uh, C.S. Lewis became a Christian largely because of Tolkien's influence. Uh, so again, the two greatest writers of the 20th century, uh, uh, English-speaking writers, two greatest Christian writers, uh, the one became a Christian because of the other. But he did not become a Catholic. So J.R.R. Tolkien was a Catholic, and Lewis is like, hey, I'll take your Christ, but I'm going to be in an Anglican church and not a Catholic church. And that never quite sat well with Tolkien. Like, hey, you know, I, I'm the one who brought you to Christ. You should join my church, not this other one, this competing one. So that was a bit of a problem. Um, there was another friend who I won't get into that kind of created. He was kind of a, kind of a wedge between the two. And then finally, uh, C.S. Lewis married an American woman later in life who was divorced uh, and not a divorce that was sort of square with the Catholic Church. And so Tolkien never quite was able to get over this, that not only did Lewis marry an American, which is, you know, unforgivable, uh, <laughs> but that she had been divorced. And so Tolkien was a very committed Catholic, and as you know, uh, there's only a few stipulations where you can get remarried after a divorce, and, and she didn't fit one of those. And so Tolkien was kind of bothered with C.S. Lewis over that. And so they had a bit of a falling out. And we'll get back to this story in a bit. But when I think of two great leaders, two of the very best of their time, I wanted to start with that Lewis and Tolkien story because it's only, you know, 80 years ago, and it's a lot closer to our time, maybe 60 years ago. Uh, it's a lot closer to our time, but there is a very similar kind of relationship and falling out in the early church, and that's between Paul and Barnabas. So I want to talk about the relationship between Paul and Barnabas today. They were friends among friends. Barnabas is the one that when, when Saul became a Christian and was like, hey, I want to help all the churches, all the churches were like, yeah, right, you're a spy, right? You're, you were killing us and, and, and finding us out and bringing us to prison. There's no way that you're a Christian now and that you want to just be, you know, in with us. And Barnabas is the one who took the risk of laying his own neck on the line and saying, no, he actually is telling the truth, right? He's legit. Uh, so Paul and Barnabas were really close friends among friends. They were some of the most influential people in the early church until they too had a falling out. Now theirs, unlike the Tolkien-Lewis thing, was not a slow and gentle thing that happened over 15 years. It was one massive and single argument. There were probably things leading up to it that we don't have evidence of, but there was one massive argument and it seems like they never fully ever recovered from it. Uh, maybe partly. There was some reconciliation. I don't know if they fully recovered. Uh, but what you might be surprised by is that in the end of the, at the end of the day, it seems like Barnabas actually won the argument. Um, so first, let me share some context. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Luke and Timothy, others did three major missionary trips. And what they would do is they would leave from Antioch and they would go sharing the gospel in major cities. Basically pick any of the letters of Paul. That's where they were doing their work. Ephesus, Corinth, you know, Galatia, Colossae, that's where they were doing this work. And they would, sh they would stay there from, from between one month and three years, depending on the situation, normally a little bit longer. And they would share the gospel, they'd win people to Christ, and it was always the same rhythm. They'd go to the synagogue, they'd share the gospel, some people would reject it, some people would be curious, and other people would accept it right away. And then they'd start building, a, building sort of a community of believers, a church, 
And then they would naturally see that some people were kind of standing out as potential leaders. And they would disciple those people. They would kind of bring them along with them uh, and, and teach them, just kind of let them shadow. And after one, two, three years, they would bless those people, say like a Timothy figure. They would put, lay their hands on that leader and say, okay, now you're going to lead your own community and we're going to move on to the next city. There are these three missionary journeys that Paul does. And he had a whole fruitful ministry from before that. But it's these missionary journeys that really put Paul on the map because it's when the churches often start to get something wrong or are kind of, you know, they had Paul, but then he leaves and a year later they start fighting amongst each other over this or that. And then they ask Paul, they're like, hey, you know, Timothy's great, but we want to hear what you have to say about this because you're like the one who started this thing. And then he'll write a letter to them to tell them what's up. And that's what we have. That's his letters in the New Testament are him essentially doing conflict resolution, him getting involved and saying, this is where you're missing it, Corinth, or this is where you're getting it wrong, Colossae. Do it like this. Think like this. So that's what we have left, right? Paul had all this ministry that leaves no record. Really, the record we have is when something started to go wrong and he had to get involved from a distance. Um, so that was what they were doing. And it was very difficult work. Let me read this quick. Uh, Paul says this, and people are somewhat familiar. If you've read the New Testament a number of times, you'll be familiar with this passage. But let me tell you this. See if you can remember when these things happened to Paul. Okay, I'm going to read through this list. He gives like a whole laundry sheet of things that happened to him, bad things. See if you can remember when they happened, okay? He's talking about people who are uh, accusing him of something. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily, face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. We're maybe familiar with this rap sheet of things that he went through, but I don't know if you know this, we have very little record of any of those things happening to Paul. We believe he's, of course, telling the truth. But what I mean to say is his missionary work was very difficult. And some of the highlights make it into acts or get mentioned uh, kind of sideways, get mentioned in his letters. But a lot of the difficulties that Paul went through didn't even make it into acts. So when we see this laundry sheet of difficulties, we're like, oh, wait, you were shipwrecked twice more than you told us about, than Luke told us about in acts. And you were given the 40 lashes minus one. So they said on average, it would take 40 lashes for somebody to die, to bleed to death, to just be to, for their life to be extinguished. So the most severe punishment you could be before death was to give 39 whipping, 39 lashes. And he got it however many times he just said, five times. I think we only have one or two recorded. So a lot of bad stuff happened to Paul that we don't really know when or where or, or how it happened. Many of those things have gone unrecorded, but we know that they happened and that the missionary work was a hard life. And so I want to tee this up, his context for his missionary work, uh, to share this, that in the early church, there was a woman named, there's a lot of women named Mary. There was another one who doesn't seem to be any of the other Marys that you know of, but she was a somewhat wealthy woman and that she's one of the few people in the ancient world that would have had a home large enough for the whole church to fit in. So she 
was kind of a house church leader or host. She hosted prayer groups and whatnot. And when Peter first gets out of prison, when he has a miraculous escape from prison, he runs straight to her house. And the servant girl from behind the closed gate recognizes Peter's voice just by earshot. She knows it's Peter just by his voice. So what that tells us is Peter spent a ton of time there. This is likely the setting of one of the very early churches. Another argument for women in ministry that this woman, Mary, a widow, is hosting this whole church in her home. And it's very hard to host a church in your home without some authority over the men who are attending that church um, in terms of deciding who gets in, who gets out, when you host it, all that stuff. So anyway, she's named Mary. She's somewhat wealthy, probably a widow. And uh, Peter spent a lot of time there, and so did Paul. It's the first place they would go to a lot of times when they went to Jerusalem. And um, her son, she had a son whose name was John Mark. Has anyone heard of John Mark before? Her son is named John Mark. John, who is called Marcus. So we just call him John Mark. Uh, his Hebrew name was probably John. His Latin name was Marcus. They just called him John Marcus, John Mark. So he and Peter go way back there. attend the same house church, essentially. And he and Paul go way back. And when the church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas says, hey, I recommend bringing this young man, John Mark, along. Uh, and it turns out that John Mark is actually Barnabas' cousin as well. So it seems like Later, you kind of read this backwards and you realize that Barnabas has this kind of natural discipling instinct. He's like, yeah, you know, Paul, you and I are fit to go lead this ministry, but I think we should bring along someone who's younger, who's uh, promising, right? Who's kind of an apprentice figure. Uh, and so John Mark accompanied them and learned the work of an apostle. He learned how to be a Paul or a Peter, and he helped them, no doubt, with the kind of work that all apprentices throughout all of history have done. And what kind of work do apprentices do? They normally do a little bit like less of the glory work, right? A little bit more grunt, a little bit more set up and tear down kind of stuff, whatever it might be. They, they take care of the stuff that needs to happen so that the leaders can, can lead more effectively. And that way they learn the whole work of it so that when it's their turn, they can step into those shoes. But there was a problem. You may have heard this story. Somewhere along the way, it became too much for John Mark. And we don't know what it was, but again, when you listen to the rap sheet of all the stuff that Paul went through, some of that was probably happening to Mark as well. Probably some beatings or some lashings or some stonings or something. And he, remember, his mother was not poor, right? His mother was wealthy. So he had grown up in a large home in a kind of, maybe not the lap of luxury, but he was certainly, let's say, in the top 5% of people to have a home that was big enough to fit a church back then. Now, a lot of people could host a group this size in like their basement. Back then, people lived in homes of 150 square feet. So if you had a home that was large enough to, say, fit a, a small church, and you had 1,000 or 1,500 square feet, you were just insanely wealthy by the standards of the era. So John Mark had probably grown up wealthy, and now he's trekking around the Mediterranean and getting just the snot kicked out of him wherever he goes, right? Getting beaten, uh, and somehow it became too much for him, and he essentially gets a one-way ticket and, and leaves them. Some people speculate that he left Without even, without even telling them that he just left in the middle of the night. Other people think, no, he probably made his intentions known, but he got a one-way ticket back to Jerusalem. Have you guys heard this story before? John Mark abandoning, he's, actually a, a, he, he's the apprentice and he abandons the guys like mid-missionary journey. It's like if you're a sous chef, just like left the kitchen in the middle of a busy shift, like I'm done, right? You wouldn't think too well about that person, right? So he gets, on a, he gets a one-way ticket and sailed straight home. And some people have joked, <laughs> they have called him a mama's boy 
because of this, because, you know, his mom is a, a widow and is wealthy, and he's kind of grown up with all this luxury, and now he's been away from his mom for too long. And, you know, let's be fair, he's probably getting, like, whipped, so, like, he's got a real excuse here. Uh, but he goes home to Jerusalem, one-way ticket, he wants to be with his mom again. Uh, anyway, so uh, he goes back to be with his mom. And so I will say, though, later, and at the end of this sermon you'll hear, he would earn his reputation later in the church. Although he doesn't start with maybe a very good one, he would earn it later. So later, when Paul and Barnabas are about to go on their second missionary journey, okay, so John Mark has abandoned them. It's years later now. They're about to go on their second missionary journey. Um, and Barnabas says, hey, you know, we ought to bring this young man again, my cousin, whose name is John Mark. And Paul's like, no way. He is not touching any ship that I go on ever again. They disagree. It says in Acts, they disagreed sharply. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, i.e. they were yelling at each other, uh, that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Uh, just a quick note again, we talked about this earlier. Cilicia is where Tarsus is, Tarsus is the capital, and there were somehow already churches there, which is the evidence that Paul was doing church planting before we ever hear of him during those sort of lost 10 years. Anyway, uh, so sharp disagreement. Uh, John Mark goes with Barnabas. Barnabas and Paul essentially split, right? They're like this dynamic duo, this Jonathan and David partnership, and they split. Barnabas takes John Mark, his cousin, and then Paul picks Silas and takes him instead. Um, so Paul goes with Silas in one direction. Literally, Barnabas and, and Mark go in the other direction. But then the strangest thing happens. Very quickly into the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas meet a promising young man. You may have heard of him. His name is Timothy. Two letters in the New Testament bear his name, and he ends up being the sort of primary leader, the, the, the bishop, some have called him, of Ephesus, which is the largest Christian population in the early church. So he ends up being a very big deal. And they meet this young guy named Timothy, who's really promising. And Paul essentially takes a page from Barnabas's book and invites Timothy to join him, just like John Mark was in the first missionary journey. So he basically, he, he copies Barnabas' strategy of taking a younger man and helping to sort of form and craft him in the model of an apostle. It's as if Paul realized that Barnabas was right, that this model of training and leading that, that Barnabas had, he realized that's the right way to train up the next leaders in the church. And I sort of you know, said no to this John Mark character, but hey, here's this other really promising person who hasn't abandoned me, at least yet, or, or he never does. But he chooses Timothy and starts raising him up to do the same thing. And this model, this single model, is the dominant way that, that leaders in the early church were raised up for centuries. And it's also something we've really come back to in the last 100 or 200 years with the church planting movements and disciple-making movements. Um, that an apostle or a leader, church planter, pastor, whoever, would take a very small number of people under their wings, kind of like Jesus did, and instead of some formal class or formal learning process, they would simply work alongside these people day in and day out. This is how Mother Teresa trained up people. You just bring someone alongside, and certainly there are moments for direct instruction, but largely you're just shadowing. You're just, uh, you're learning 
by the things being caught rather than taught. Have you heard of this distinction? You're learning by those things that are caught rather than taught. And this, it's almost like Paul realizes he was wrong. Uh, that maybe John Mark is a tool, you know, in his mind, but like what Barnabas was doing was right. Uh, and so he pulls in Timothy and does the same thing. And after one to three years of this discipleship process, the apostles would lay their hands on this apprentice, bless them and sort of choose them or lift them up in front of the church and say, hey, here's your leader. We're going to move on to the next city and do the same thing all over again. And here's your leader. And that's what happened with Timothy in Ephesus. And, and granted, he was probably one of the strongest early church leaders that we have. And it makes sense that he had spent all that time under maybe the strongest early church leader that we have. And we've largely uh, revived this method today. If you think of, uh, there's certain people like Billy Graham or like Campus Crusade, they're kind of in the more like modern sense, just let's reach as many people as we can, right? A mile wide and an inch deep. Let's reach a lot of people. Whereas there's other ministries then like Navigators who said, hey, no, let's just reach two people, right? And then have those two people reach two people and have those two people reach two people. That whole method of discipling a small group of people really deeply and then having them go on and double that, that comes back all the way to Barnabas and Paul and this method of raising up disciples. That's the genius of Barnabas. We owe this not to Paul. Paul gets all the credit for this because he did, he, he did sort of make it the most effective and he did perfect it, but it was Barnabas that gave him the idea. It was Barnabas's original idea. And that even though they had this falling out and possibly over very good reasons, you don't want to be abandoned by your, your apprentice mid-journey. Um, but Paul realized that this concept of discipleship among a very small group of people was the right way to do things. And he began to recreate it. And this Timothy would go on to do the same. Uh, just like John would have Polycarp and Irenaeus, Timothy would have the same with his disciples. So, and, and as would, whatever happened to John Mark? Has anyone ever, have you ever wondered this? Like as you're reading through, like which Mark is which and whatever happened to him? Was he ever able to man up? Was he ever able to grow up? This mama's boy who left the mission partway in to go home to the comforts of his wealthy mother. He was. So he stayed close with Peter. Remember, they would have had years and years of close contact. He and Peter and he and Paul. They would have attended the same prayer group or house church. And Peter, uh, being a fisherman, was not strong in Greek. He spoke Aramaic. He was not strong. He was not educated. He wasn't strong in like the global, sort of the Mediterranean language of Greek. Um, but John Mark, being a wealthy kid, would have been educated. And so he was. And so the early church remembers that John Mark actually was the uh, interpreter for Peter. That when Peter starts going around the Mediterranean, they remember John Mark as being his interpreter when he would preach and things like that. Uh, and then when Peter came toward the end of his life, he's probably in prison with Paul in Rome. A lot of people don't know this. Peter dictated his own gospel account, arguably the first gospel account. And John Mark translated that very Hebraic, very Jewish, Semitic language into Greek. But he left it in like the structure of that Hebrew and Semitic language. But it comes through in Greek. And it comes down to us in our Bibles. And that's what you know is the second gospel of the New Testament. We call it the gospel of Mark. It's most likely Peter. It's Peter who's telling these stories because the writer of Mark often talks in the first person. The writer of Mark was there. Uh, and now Mark wasn't there, but, but Peter was, and Mark was his interpreter. Uh, and Peter did not speak much Greek. Okay, I've got my mic on still. Uh, Peter did not speak much Greek, maybe just enough for the market, but it's thought that Peter was dictating the gospel of Mark to his helper, John Mark, who was then translating it into Greek. So when you read Mark next time, know that 
Though we call it the Gospel of Mark, it's the same John Mark, and it's probably actually Peter who is voicing some or all or most of that in that story. The second Gospel of the New Testament. So we don't have the details, but we do have a little clue. Whatever happened with Paul and Barnabas, right? Whatever happened with Paul and John Mark? Was there any healing there? And we do have this clue. So let's say about 15 years later, in 62 AD, Paul is in prison in Rome, and he says this in the letter of the Col- of, of, to the Colossians. He says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So he's sitting in prison in Rome, and he sends along greetings from Mark, which means that Mark is not just writing him a letter. It means that Mark is visiting him in prison. So this same guy who 15 years ago as a kid completely blew up this missionary journey and left and Paul wants nothing to do with him. Now, 15 years later, we don't know exactly how, but we do know that John Mark is visiting Paul in person in his dungeon in prison in 62 AD. And seemingly they've really become friends because you get the sense this isn't just one meeting. You get the sense this is a long friendship and relationship. This is likely the same period if Paul and Peter were in prison together. Just imagine those two people being in prison at the same time. It's just crazy. Those two early church leaders being in the same spot. It's just like too much for the mind to imagine. Paul and Peter are in prison together. John Mark is probably there helping to write Peter's gospel. And he's also patching things up with Paul. And then Paul says, Mark, John Mark sends his greetings, the cousin of Barnabas. We don't know how well Paul and Barnabas were able to patch things up. Barnabas does not reappear in the New Testament a single time after this. Of course, he went on to do great work, but we do not have any evidence that Paul and Barnabas remained in contact. But Paul does patch things up with John Mark at the end of his life, which is a beautiful story of reconciliation in the early church. Uh, History has a kind of healing and reconciling moment. If we move back to the 20th century, our opening example of Lewis and Tolkien, there is a kind of healing and reconciling moment between them as well. So a lot of people look back and they say in one of the greatest snubs of all time, the um, Nobel Prize in Literature, the committee that decides who gets the Nobel Prize in Literature, they snubbed J.R.R. Tolkien for The Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, at the time it was like unheard of that someone would invent an entire world. It arguably, arguably had not been done for 400 years that someone tried to do something that vast and create their own language and all the rest. Um, but they, didn't, they just didn't find it compelling enough at the time to give it the Nobel Prize in literature. And so they snubbed him and gave it to someone that no one reads and no one cares about anymore. But, but Tolkien, of course, has gone on to be the number, the, the Lord of the Rings is the number one best-selling book of the 20th century. Uh, there's this great comic or meme that I saw once. I think it was a comic. And it's Hemingway uh, going to the pearly gates and standing before Peter. And he says, just tell me, who, who is the best writer of the 20th century? And Peter's like, what? He's like, just tell me, was it me? Was it Faulkner? Was it Fitzgerald? You know, who, who was it? And then the next panel has him just stepping back and he goes, the heck is a hobbit? <laughs> like he didn't even know, he hadn't even heard about this Tolkien character. But it's actually, that comic really got at the truth that in 500 years or a thousand years, should we all be here as the human race? In 500 or a thousand years, when they look back at our era, no one's going to be reading Hemingway except for like, literature historian experts of this time. But the one thing that will survive, just like Shakespeare, like no one reads any of Shakespeare's contemporaries unless you're a historian, but people still read Shakespeare, right? 
Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, is probably the only thing that people will read from this entire 100-year period in 500 years. It's the one thing that will survive. It's the great thing from our era. And sadly, even the Narnia Chronicles, even Harry Potter, all this will be forgotten to the sands of time unless you're a historian. But Tolkien's work will live on. Uh, and so there was this great mystery. You have to be recommended for the Nobel Prize in Literature. And there's a very small cohort of extremely great writers, literature professors, like world leaders who get to recommend who the winner should be, right? And then the overall committee in Sweden decides. But it was this mystery for the ages, like who was it that put up the recommendation? It's not just like a line on a paper. You have to write a whole like 20 page paper in defense of why this work should win the Nobel Prize in Literature. And they have the record sealed. And so there's this great mystery, like who on earth submitted this Lord of the Rings for consideration? And you have to wait 50 years until the records open up. And so in 2011, 2012, you hit the 50 year mark from when the Lord of the Rings was eligible to be submitted. And finally the record became unsealed and they realized it was C.S. Lewis himself. Even after they had had, I mean, they were still in touch, but they, their friendship was nothing like it had been before. But C.S. Lewis had gone to bat and said, this is one of the greatest works of literature, not of our year or decade, but of all of human history. And you need to consider this for you know, the Nobel Prize in Literature. And he went on to write this whole beautiful defense, which is just, it's a really beautiful thing, right? Even for friends who have kind of, they've had their season and they've kind of fallen out to still have the appreciation for each other, for Lewis to sit down and take a whole week's worth of work to write this paper on why Tolkien's work should be considered. So hopefully I haven't just skimmed the surface of that. You know, I, again, I pick on evangelical pastors for looking to those two for, for too many uh, anecdotes, but hopefully we're plumbed a little bit deeper and learned some new things that you haven't heard before, that it was Lewis himself, even after falling out, who recommended this work for the Nobel Prize in Literature. Considered possibly the greatest snub in the prize's history that Tolkien didn't get it. Now, now with the you know, advantage of the Monday morning quarterbacking of, of looking back 60 years later, we're like, oh, that was a big mistake because nobody reads any of the other people who were up for those awards except for like classicists or uh, classic literature you know, readers. Okay, so uh, after Peter and Paul were martyred and Rome was surviving, it was sort of well set up, it was a healthy church, uh, John Mark went to North Africa, which don't think of it as Africa now. North Africa was just part of the Roman Empire. It was like all the wealthy, important, bustling cities were all just kind of surrounding the Mediterranean. If you were on the coast of the Mediterranean, you were in the Roman Empire. So he goes there to Alexandria and what we think of now as like Cairo and that whole area. Um, and he spreads the gospel in some of the very largest cities in the Roman Empire. So here this sort of like mama's boy, as problematic as that term is, Mama's boy, sort of weak guy who left the mission field halfway through the first trip. Now he's really showing his stuff, right? He was, he was next to Peter for decades. He's reconciled with Paul. He wrote the first gospel, the, the, you know, the, well, the second gospel, but the first in terms of timeline. He wrote the first gospel in the New Testament. And now he's going to Alexandria, the second or third largest city in the Roman Empire, and establishing the church there. And that ended up giving birth to the three different major streams of Christianity, all of them which predate the Roman Catholic Church. In terms of like institutional affiliation, uh, Mark sets up the church in, in Alexandria, which goes on to be the Egyptian Coptic Church, which is still functioning and thriving with millions of members to this day. And it's older than the Roman Catholic Church. So sometimes the Catholics will be like, we're the oldest, we got everything. And the Coptics show up and they're like, sorry. <laughs> um, so Mark established that church and also 
what now calls themselves the Egyptian Orthodox and the Egyptian Catholic Church. All of them trace their lineage back to Mark, and they're all older than the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Egyptian, uh, let's see here, Mark would not stop sharing the good news. So at one point, he stopped midway through the journey when he had like the best discipler ever. But now he's on his own, and he just won't stop, right? They keep threatening him in Alexandria, all the non-Christians, I guess. Um, they all keep threatening him that he needs to stop or he'll be killed, but he won't stop, just like many of the other early church disciples. And so eventually, uh, we'll just say that they tied something around him and took him on a tour around the city until he was no longer alive. We'll just say that, given some of the ages of people here. Until he was, so that's how he, that's how the apostle John Mark, the writer of the second gospel of the New Testament, was martyred. And what we learn, I think, from this very personal story, again, my, my main intention is to humanize Paul and to, and to think of him as a person. Just finally stop thinking of him as, as a brain on a stick and remember, man, this guy had genuine friends with, and friendships with so many people. But there were, just like with us, there were friendships that he lost that partly due to his own mistakes or partly due to just seeing things different ways, he, he made mistakes, right? He lost friendships and he maybe seems not to have reconciled. Barnabas does not show up again in Acts, which means that Paul wasn't around him because Luke is essentially just writing Paul's story. Paul made mistakes, but he learned this thing from Barnabas and then he perfected it himself. But he learned, and this is the application of this sermon, is what Barnabas had figured out and what Paul had adopted for himself was this discipleship method, right? That we don't try to reach 20 or 30 or 50 or 100,000 people. I think Mother Teresa said, you can do no great things, only small things with great love. And I, that's a really good way of saying the same. So I'll say that again. You can do no great things, only small things with great love. And that was her methodology. And you see in the same way, in terms of bringing up the next generation, that was Barnabas's way. That was Paul's way. They're not doing great things. They're doing these very small things, reaching groups of two or three, raising up the next group of leaders, you know, having a house church of 20 people. They're doing these small things with great love, which as you know, have tipped the world upside down through time. But it didn't, it's not like they were filling stadiums with 100,000 people. They were doing small things with great love. And that is our calling as well, right? To to bring people alongside and to do the good work of God, right? To do the ministry of Christ, not only sharing the good news, but also caring for the least of these, right? The, the, the two sort of poles of Jesus's life where he'd share the good news of the coming kingdom and repentance, but he would also care for the weak, the poor, the marginalized. Those two things were the, the kind of the center of Jesus and the early church's ministry and Paul's. And he would just bring people alongside, very few people, and show them the work, raise them up in that, and then lay hands on them, pray over them, and send them off to do and continue that work. And that is the call for us as well. It seems like this method of discipleship with a very small number of people is the most effective tool that any ministry has ever come up with. So you're seeing this in discipleship movements in the missions world. You're seeing this in church planting. We keep having to rediscover this. And one direct way to apply it, if you're a parent of, of, of younger children, or not even younger, uh, is that's the model we take in the family, right? People don't have 30 kids, but you may have two or three, right? And you can disciple your children in the same way that Paul is discipling Timothy and Barnabas is discipling John Mark. And it's not so much about instruction, it's about what's caught rather than taught, right? Bringing people alongside and doing the good work that Jesus has laid out for us 
sharing the good news of the kingdom, of repentance, of caring for the least of these, and bringing those people alongside you so that they can learn and, and, and slowly take on more and more responsibility until guess what? They're just sort of doing it themselves. That's the model of leadership that we get first from Barnabas. He's the genius. Then Paul, who realized he was right and perfected it and brought it into all the other churches. And then still 2000 years later, down to today, where the ministries that tend to thrive are the ones that do this. And the ministries that tend to puff up and burn out and, and fade out are the ones that don't do this. Um, so that's my major, very practical application for this message is do ministry like Barnabas. Don't do ministry like a social media influencer. Sound good? All right, let me pray to close us. And then I invite you to get more coffee and donuts. Father, we thank you for this lesson from Barnabas, this son of encouragement that comes down through the ages. He doesn't get nearly enough credit for this, but we thank you that Paul was uh, humble enough to realize that Barnabas was right and that he kept on using that method even after they had their falling out. Um, we pray that you would help us to disciple others in our lives, whether they be children, our children, whether they be people that we're at work with, our colleagues, our friends, our family. We pray for the strength not to try to cast this crazy wide net but to invest in one or two or three people and invest deeply that after the years of having them alongside us, after uh, teaching them through what's caught rather than taught, that you would then multiply the faith and multiply that influence through their lives and that they would go on to do the same. We thank you for this lesson. We thank you for the life of Paul and Barnabas. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.